So I want to thank all the panelists and just reflect on a few things. Uh, I think Konrad uh, uh, Elst um, made a point which is mentioned very centrally in my book and that is uh, how Sheldon Pollock used the whole Babri Masjid episode in a very disingenuous way. Uh, he mentioned, Konrad uh, 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 mentioned one disingenuous aspect well, besides throwing him out of some mythology list, but uh, one, the, the way he interpreted and misinterpreted the whole uh, history of Ayodhya. But beyond that, my book shows him writing, Pollock writing, projecting back a thousand years that the rise of Ramayana and the rise of the legend of Ram in the public, uh, popular public, was inherently a weapon against Muslims thousand years ago. So it's not only misinterpreting what happened in Ayodhya, you know, some 20 whatever years ago, uh, but also uh, using that as his frame to kind of interpret the whole history of Ramayana thousand years back. His theory is, he is very clear on this, writes quite a lot, quite a lot of times. His theory is that when the Turks were invading say around 12th century and thereafter, Hindu kings needed a unifying grand narrative to rabble rouse the public against these invaders. And Ramayana came to, uh, became the accepted uh, narrative where the king was divine, so the Hindu kings were the divine kings like Ram, and the idea of Ravan was projected, the Rakshas was projected upon the outsiders. And this was a way to, this became a publicly popular grand narrative. They started building temples which he says did not exist before. That there was no major worship of Ram, he says, and no big Ramalila. So all this is stuff that historians of Ramayana, I, I want their help because I don't can't go back and do all this. I'm just pointing out that it seems very strange that uh, Ramayana has been a kind of weapon against Muslims for a thousand years. This is a very, very strange and uh, kind of uh, uh, turning Ramayana into hate speech sort of, almost. So I'm glad he touched on this. Then uh, 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 Professor Rao challenged a lot of the chronology. Uh, Pollock says, uh, Valmiki comes two, three hundred years after Buddha. That is the claim. And um, uh, uh, Panini also. Panini also. In fact, he says that in the Jataka tales, there is a man called Ram, and that is where uh, probably uh, Valmiki got the idea to write this whole, blow it up and make it into Ramayana. So, the Buddhist origins of my very, very strange uh, sort of things. Now, uh, uh, the, uh, what uh, Professor Jha said uh, regarding the qualities and properties of uh, Sanskrit, when you look at quanti uh, uh, computational linguistics, which is a use of Sanskrit, uh, I use that as one of the counter-arguments against Pollock, who says that the, what, made it, what makes it useful and made it useful was the political structures. And so I'm saying, well, today it is the computational linguistic structures that make it uh, useful also. So practical things are being ignored because they're appropriating those and turning it into a, a kind of a political oppression tool, that sort of thing. Uh, the Murthy Library, which is Narayan Murthy's multi-million dollar grant to Sheldon Pollock and his team, wants to translate 500 Indian texts. So, 
you can imagine the built-in ideas of Aryan theory, the built-in ideas of certain words, how they are translated, the chronology, the influence of Buddhism, the fight clash between Buddhist and Vedic ideas, the oppressiveness, the politicization of these texts. If these are the, the key, the sacred, you know, uh, principles that have never been debated or contested until my book came out, if these are the central ideas and ideologies of the editor-in-chief who gets to select which book will be translated, who will be the translator, he does the review and is the final arbiter, then you, then you have to worry that this could become worse than the Max Miller translations. You know, he did only, what, 40, 50 volumes? And now we're talking about 500 volumes. So this is going to be a very big problem for us. And those Max Miller volumes were not spread out all over in Indian schools. They stayed mostly in Europe. Uh, but the plan here of the Murthy Library is to make it 100, 100 rupee paperback and sell them all over, flood the market. This will, this will, in 10 years, you could see the death of Sanskrit. I'm on Sanskrit because of the uh, kind of flooding of the market with material that has not been looked at, reviewed by people who are the insiders of the tradition. So I, I'm very worried about that. And uh, Kapilji is not here. The latest uh, thing he told me that made me laugh, and I don't know if it was a joke or not, but he said, you know, Vedas were written by Punjabis. <laughs> he says, huh, Punjabi, I see, and he says, very seriously, he says, yeah, dekho, because all this territory they were talking about, this Pakistan, Afghanistan, all this is Punjab only. So we should be very happy that we Punjabis wrote this Vedas. So I said, you know, what you have to do is see if in the Vedas they mention Chola Bhatura. Then it will clear the <laughs> That's how we have, we have now got a project for JNU Sanskrit department to look for either Makhi Roti or Chola Bhutura. Then deal is done. Uh, I really appreciate Devapriya's uh, really catching on to this book, what it's all about. And I'm very glad that a young scholar, brilliant scholar like her is on the case. And I'm hoping you'll be part of this home team. And I'll close by saying that I, I, uh, the lecture tour I'm, I'm, I've been on for the last two, three weeks went to Karnataka, Chennai, Tamil Nadu, Ahmedabad, Bombay before coming here yesterday. Uh, I uh, was received very well by traditional scholars from Karnataka Sanskrit University and the leading Sanskrit University in Chennai, uh, various uh, uh, Sanskrit departments run by uh, uh, the uh, Swami Narayan. Uh, scholars in Ramakrishna mission and so on and most of them in fact without exception every one of them said that it is time we the Indian traditional Sanskrit scholars took this project to the, took this challenge of doing Purva Pakshan critique of Western Indologists so uh, if that happens then my work will not have gone in vain because that is all I want to happen so now I have offers now I have uh, a, a, a volunteers Sanskrit uh, Karnataka Sanskrit University has told me that they will set aside some of their brightest scholars. Somebody else in the same trip came up with the funding and said, I'll fund all this project and you, you have money to meet and all of that kind of stuff. And similarly in Chennai, uh, I was given commitments. So uh, it, would, it would be wonderful if JNU wants to join this also. Uh, and, and P. 
people of any uh, traditional side. Uh, I talked to the Shankaracharya of uh, Kanchi, both the senior and the uh, junior Shankaracharyas were there. We spoke for a very long time. Uh, they gave me a, uh, the honor of doing a television discussion, a te I mean uh, uh, videotaped, which they normally don't. So we have a lot of footage of about two hours of conversation on this. And they said that they would really like to get involved in uh, looking at, the, you know, investing in Sanskrit resources to look at Western Indology. And then I got uh, a letter from the uh, head of the Akhara Parishad. They are the people who own the Kumbh Mela. Uh, and they said they want to start a university, a university of Indology. They want to, but they have a lot of money, by the way. Um, so I think if all I can do is ignite this kind of interest that we should talk back, we should take the adhikar in our own hands. We should not outsource the adhikar of who we are. And we should, in fact, control this, this, this course. It would be, it would be fantastic. Uh, the reason I said, Jane, you can play an important role is because you also have resources in English. You need to know English in order to read those Western Indologists. One of the things that the Sanskrit traditionalists told me is that we can't read English. You know, we don't know English. And especially English, which has been infused with Western philosophy and thought and history, very complicated language. We don't know what they're talking about. We can read ordinary English like in a newspaper, but we do not read the English as written by Western Indologists, which is very kind of heavy and tech jargonized, absolutely jargonized. So all this alienates our own people from the study of ourselves. Because our traditional scholars, the best traditional scholars they brought to me, in these universities said if you tell they said to me if you can tell me what they are saying I'll give you the answer mm -hmm. but I don't know what they are saying because I had actually uh, employed two three traditional scholars from who were very highly recommended while I was writing this book just to check things out and I sent them soft copies of all their writings and one guy after three months three months and he's a well educated person he writes in English and Sanskrit and Kannada and his wife also. After three months, he comes and says, you know, I have out of the 600 pages book, I can barely understand the first 20 pages because I really don't know what they're saying. So this is, this is where the English language resources in JNU can help understand and uh, kind of re restate it for the uh, traditional Sanskrit people who can then give the answer. It needs to be a collaboration between multiple kinds of Indians and not just, I think that it will be very rare to find a, one person who knows it all to be able to give answers to these things. And the other side has been at it for a couple of hundred years and intensified it in the last few decades. So we are just starting this talking back, taking back. And therefore, I, I hope JNU will be part of this team. Thank you very much.